call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12. <laughs> Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. May we walk in the truth of the Lord and be faithful to give thanks to him for all things. Amen.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together to worship you, Lord. Thank you for uh, the lyrics of these songs. But we uh, want to focus on uh, the missionaries that you uh, have had us support in uh, Ireland and Bangladesh and China. Uh, we thank you for what they're doing, that they're spreading the gospel to all nations, Lord. And uh, help us to be more in prayer for them. and and uh, to keep t keep in touch if we can, to ask for specific needs to pray for. And uh, it's been on my mind, Lord. Uh, thank you for local missionaries that have uh, stepped away from their jobs to uh, pursue full-time mission to certain places, even in America. And we thank you for them, and we pray your blessing upon them. And uh, help us uh, where, where you have us in our life right now, Lord, to be missionaries to our job and our workplace and our home that we would focus on sharing the gospel with our uh, family and neighbors and loved ones and uh, calling them to repentance and faith in you lord uh, this is the most loving thing we can do for them and uh, we thank you for this time together and that's all this in jesus name amen For we carry His life in our veins. 
truth in the songs we sing may it ring true in our hearts today father i pray for austin as he comes to to break the bread of life to us today father as we consider the importance of prayer in the life of a child of god father i, I think of myself sometimes and how i can be temporal somewhat unstable when approached by my children but i thank you that as we come to you as your children, Father, you are you are solid, you're unmovable, and you long to hear from us. So, Father, I pray that your word would help us today, would lead us to the truth that you, you love to hear from us. Father, just as we love to hear from our children, we love for them to call upon us. And Father, I pray that our prayer lives would grow from this study. Father, help Austin today be glorified through the study of your word and it's in your name I pray Amen well, as, I, as I said earlier Alan's out sick today and so today's sermon is going to be a, a bit of a wild card um, we're not going to be in John but I, I want to show you how today's sermon is is connected to John um, because it is um, it, you know I was just thinking could, where, where, where can we go I wasn't really ready to you know Saturday, Saturday morning <laughs> I wasn't ready to dive into the next section in John uh, you know John 15 trying to wrestle through that passage on the on the Holy Spirit it's like no I'm just not going to try and tackle that so okay Lord what where, where should I go? What should I? What should I preach on? I kept landing on prayer, partly for me because it's. I feel like it's been a dry season of prayer, and I've just really been struggling with it, and so needed to, you know, personally revisit some reminders, you know, to 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 refuel and, to, and just to strengthen uh, the the exercise of prayer and be reminded why do I pray? Um, but then also. You know, as I thought about where we are in John, I thought, you know, this this matches well actually talking about prayer. Um, so 
think with me, you know, you can turn to John 15 if you want to. I'm not going to stay there. Um, we're actually going to be in first in Second Corinthians. Um, but let me just show you kind of how I get to Second Corinthians from John 15. Because in John 15, where we've been, Jesus has said, he's been talking about the vine. Now, remember a few weeks ago, uh, Alan preached on John 15, uh, you know, the first section on it, where Jesus uses the imagery of the vine to talk about the Christian and the believer. And he says in John 15, 7 and 8, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then towards the end of that section in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So here, here's the point. In the midst of this, Jesus is just fueling the disciples for the work that's ahead of them. That they can't see it yet. But he's spending time just pouring into them. You must abide in me. My word must abide in you. There's a work that you're going to do when I'm gone that the Holy Spirit's going to equip you for that you're not ready for. But you're going to do it. Where you're going to testify. As I read last week, this is what you're going to do. The world's pressures are going to come upon you. The world's going to hate you because it hated me. And what are you going to do in response to it? You're going to testify. You're going to give glory to God through your proclamation of the gospel and the way you live your life. Basically, God's going to get glory through your suffering. That's what he's saying. That's the emphasis there. And so Jesus is fueling the disciples with this. And in the midst of what we have here, especially here in this little section in John 15 where Jesus is talking about abiding in me, he couples that with prayer. He says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I've chosen you, I've appointed you so that you'll go, go and bear fruit. What does that mean? That you'll go and you'll share the gospel and the gospel will be a seed that plants and it will cause new creations to come into people and they'll be born again. There'll be fruit. So fruit's people that are regenerate, born again of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the whole point. That's what the disciples are there to do. That's what any Christian that follows from their witness on and on through the centuries all the way down to today, that's their purpose. That you would bear fruit, that people would come to faith through your testimony of how great and glorious God is. And he says, all of this is designed so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give to you. So there's a coupling there of the power of God that comes through the believer in, the, in what God has for us to do to exalt his name in our lives that's necessarily linked with prayer. Ask, 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 and it will be given to you. So there, there's kind of that connection. I hope you see it. You know, there, there's a connection with the power of God in the believer that's latent. And, and the, the, what, what causes it to come out and actually be visible and, and effective is prayer. It's prayer. The branches that are connected to the vine produce fruit. If they're disconnected from the vine, they don't produce fruit. Right? If you know anything about plants, there's sap. See, I don't know anything. I think sap's maybe restricted just to pine trees. You know, I grew up on, on a farm in Georgia and we had a pine grove and there was a lot of sap. You know, if you go out and play in the fine pine grove, you got sap on you. So, you know, the liquid stuff that goes through the 
See, I'm terrible at horticulture here. <laughs> you get the idea, though. It's connected. You know, the nutrients, all that stuff, the power that actually causes the fruit flows through the branches to, to the ends, and it bears the fruit. If you chop it off, it dies. And that's the point, is that the link between the fruit-bearing power of God and the Christian life is daily prayer. Is daily prayer. And so we've got to learn how to link our lives, link ourselves to God's, prayer, God's power through prayer in order, for his, in order for His power to do anything uh, through us. So prayer is the conduit for that, prow, that power. And if we miss that, then we risk severing ourselves from the branch. Being disconnected. And there's warnings about that in Scripture. Jesus warns that the branches that don't bear fruit, what happens to them? They're dead. They're cut off. They're cast into the fire. We have to beware, as Paul writes in, in uh, Colossians 2.19, uh, of not holding fast to the head. You see, that there's that vine imagery there too. Clinging to Christ, who's the head. Not holding fast to Christ. Not abiding in Christ from whom the entire body grows the power flows through Christ to the body remember Revelation 3 the church at Sardis what's the charge against that church I know you but your works are dead there's, there's no power there. there's no sap flowing so we have to be careful that we have to be careful. When I was a uh, when I was a kid, I used to love playing in the woods behind my uh, behind my house. And uh, my parents lived on a big farm in Georgia. You know, we had horses, so we had a pasture. In the back of the pasture, there was a creek that separated our property from the neighbors. And uh, that creek divided multiple times, kind of uh, across this wooded and pasture area. And I used to love to go back there, but build forts. You know, I mean, I'm I, I love just playing back there, using my imagination, building forts, digging holes. Um, and one summer I found this one spot where there was the creek that came across and there was a vine that grew up this tree and it had been there for years and years and years and it had entangled itself in the top of the tree no it wasn't poison ivy I know you're asking that I was smart enough to know no but it had this thick base and I thought you know what I bet I could swing across the creek on that thing and so it was alive it was you know it was, it was attached to this tree and so I, I took uh something saw I'm sure you know whatever I could find my teeth and uh, I cut the vine off at the base and uh, pulled it back across and I uh, trimmed it you know to where it, what I needed to it was a perfect swinging rope oh it was great I thought I was Tarzan you know hang on to this thing and I could swing back and forth I'd have my friends over I said come look at this check this out this is awesome we'd swing back and forth you know I did that in the early part of the summer swinging back and forth well I learned a very important horticultural lesson that when you chop the base off and you sever the vine from where it gets its power, it's no longer strong. And by the end of the summer, the vine had died, and you guessed it. I jumped on that thing one time to swing across, and it caved in the middle. Austin got soaking wet. No. I remember that very vividly. Um, but I learned a lesson, you know, there. That when you cut the root out, or you sever the branch, it loses its power. And this is the warning for us in Scripture. And, the, and the, the coupling, the link for that power is prayer. It's prayer. It's how the power of God is connected to the believer for the carrying out of his work. 
And so here's what I want to do this morning. Here's my goal. I, I want to help you and I. Like I said, I need this just as much. I want us to develop and us as a church body to develop a robust and heartfelt burden for prayer. Both individually and corporately. And I hope that this morning I'll help answer a question that I hear asked so many times, especially in, in Reformed theological circles. Why do we pray? If God's sovereign over all these things, why do we pray? I mean, He's going to get the glory anyways. Why do we pray? And where we're going this morning to me is probably one of the best ways that I've heard framed for why we should pray. So, now I got your attention. Let's go there. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 primarily. But I want to read 1 through 11 just to get the context of it. Okay. So 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any Affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope, is, is for, you, our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from, great per from so great a peril of death, and with and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us. Through your prayers. So that thanks may be given by many persons. On our behalf. For the favor bestowed on us. Through the prayers of many. Don't you love Paul? He's so clear. No, I mean he just takes prepositional phrases. And sticks them together. You know. I admit. It's, it's, Paul's a little tough to read. No. I say that jokingly, but, but with reverence too, because God has put this here, I think, for a reason. And, and there's a lot here. I wouldn't be here if, uh, if I didn't think so. So let me give you a little context for, for where Paul is right here. 2 Corinthians, around 55, 56 AD. Paul's on his third missionary journey. Okay, he, he writes 2 Corinthians about a year or so after he writes 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a church that's just fallen apart. They're just morally corrupt. It's just falling apart. He's gone and visited and found that this church is just, it's a mess. This church he'd founded was a mess. And so he goes and he deals with them. Very, very heartfelt, very difficult. And it's so much turmoil, so much tension that he feels like, I, I've just, I've got to leave for the sake of the people here. I've got to leave. 
Otherwise, this church is just going to fall apart. And he leaves. And then he writes a letter called 1 Corinthians to them. Actually, there was a previous letter that we know was lost. We don't, we don't know it. But So our 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter. This gets a little confusing. He's got a complex relationship with this, with this church. So he writes 2 Corinthians to them. And there's just a lot of admonition in there. There's a lot of hard things that he has to say. So he writes the letter. He sends it. I think it's by Timothy. He sends it. And Timothy returns to him. And then later, close to a year or so, he's, he's burdened. I've got to know how they're doing. How, how are the how's the Corinthian church doing? And so he sends Titus. Titus goes, checks on the church, meets back up with, uh, uh, with Paul while Paul's in Macedonia, a little further north of Corinth. Again, Paul's on his third missionary journey. And Titus gives this report. Praise God. The Corinthians, most of them have repented. They've repented. They've clung to the gospel that Paul has preached. But there's a, small major, there's a small minority of them that are still against Paul. That are still preaching a false gospel. There's still this leaven that's in the church that, that's got to be dealt with. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians to the church and sends it to him. It's a very, very personal letter. Very personal. Paul really just bears his heart with them and establishes credentials for him as an apostle based a lot upon the sufferings that he's enduring and how God is being exalted and glorified through him. And so you get this initial intro to the letter that deals on a very personal basis with these, the struggle that Paul's going through, so a lot of his afflictions and, how, and what crucial role uh, prayer is playing in it. So he writes this second letter to them. Now keep in mind, Paul's, his task, his responsibility is he's the apostle to the Gentiles. That was what God had commissioned him to do, was to go out and to proclaim his name amongst the Gentiles. And so he goes and he suffers greatly because of it. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 9, it said when Paul was, you know, essentially called and getting ready to be commissioned and sent out, Paul had said, or God had said of Paul, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In Acts 20, 23, Paul leaves Ephesus and he says that he knows that the Holy Spirit testifies to him that chains and afflictions await him daily. Can you imagine that? Every single day waking up just knowing chains and afflictions are on the horizon. I mean like they're coming today. Every single day, every place that he went, he knew this is, what's, this is what's in front of me. And Paul needed comfort. He needed assurance in the midst of that daily suffering. And he says here that God gave him that during his suffer sufferings. He calls that God who comforts us. I mean, he's in the midst of Macedonia. He's in the midst of this missionary journey. He's experiencing sufferings and, and afflictions. And he writes to the Corinthians and he, he calls God the God of comfort. Now I want you to hang on to that because I'm going to draw that back in at the end. Okay, that's going to be kind of the closing point that, that closes out this aspect on prayer. But I want you to notice that. The way Paul intros this is he's talking about God as the God of all comfort. Who comforts us? But before we get there, let's talk about Paul's suffering. That Paul's sufferings and its purposes. You see, Paul's opponents here, they clearly, uh, that, that, here's what they believed. God's not with Paul. This is what they're telling the Corinthians. God's not with Paul. You know how we know that? It's because Paul's suffering. 
If God's good, and he's righteous and he's holy, then Paul can't be this apostle because he's suffering too much. Surely God would save him. Surely this can't be God's plan. Paul's got to be a false uh, uh, apostle. And Paul says, no, 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 no. My suffering is the very means through which God displays my authority as apostleship. Here's how. Two reasons. Look at verse 9. Paul says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. He's talking about him and Titus, Timothy, they're going, you know, the, their missionary work. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God. Why does Paul say that the sentence of death is on their shoulders? What's the purpose that he recognizes? So that they would rely on God and not on man. John Piper writes this. He says, Suffering is intended by God to bring about our attention and make us feel what is true all the time. Namely, that we're finite creatures absolutely dependent upon God for absolutely everything. And when we, when we don't suffer and things go well, we don't feel that. It's true, isn't it? If you don't think it's true, go outside and stop breathing. Let me know how long you last. We're absolutely dependent on God for everything. And this is a warning that's given throughout scriptures. Here's Jeremiah 17.5. Jeremiah writes and says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. If you know the context in which Jeremiah is writing, he's prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judea. Right? The Israelites had gotten pretty heady. They were you know, pretty high on themselves. Things were going well. Crops were going well. You know, the banks' rolls are good. Everything's great and we're forgetting God. We can do this ourselves. And Jeremiah's prophesying and saying, ah, you know, you're cutting yourself off from the supply that you need and destruction's coming. Cursed is the man who thinks, who trusts in mankind and flesh and his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Notice he says that, whose heart turns away from the Lord. You know, yes, yes, we do medicine. Yes, we go to the doctor when we feel like something's wrong. You know, yes. But the key thing here is whose heart is turned away from the Lord. When the reliance upon human beings and the things that we can do is our sole focus and we forget the Lord, we've transgressed, we've sinned, we've, we've, we've risked severing ourselves from the Lord. So there's a warning there. The sufferings that we experience, one of the reasons Paul says is so that we'll rely more on God and less on man. But look at the second one he says, verse 10. Who, but in God, so, so, uh, so we have the sentence upon our, ourselves, the sentence of death, so we'd not trust in, uh, in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a peril and will deliver us. He on whom we've set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So Paul has this larger eschatological view. God's going to raise, raise me from the dead. He's raised Christ from the dead and he's promised that all who follow in Christ, he'll raise him from the dead. Eternal life, life with God. Blessing, that's, that's the big picture view that Paul's going after. But Paul's not going to stand out there and say, please shoot me. You know, I, I don't care about you, just shoot me. I want to go be with Jesus. You know, we don't function in that way. The, old, the country song that says everybody wants to go to heaven but not everybody wants to go now. You know, terrible message. But the, you know, the, the idea for the Christian is that we want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go now. Why? Because Paul says we have work to do. That's what he says. God has given me a task, given me a work to do, 
to exalt his name, to proclaim his name throughout the nations to the Gentiles through the gospel message. Afflictions and chains and suffering await me. But if God preserves me, that, that job's still going. I've still got a task to do until he calls me home. So Paul had this hope that God would not only raise him from the dead, but that God would also keep him from death for the future gospel work that he prepared before, for him. Do you see that? That was his aim. That was his goal. Now here's a practical lesson for us. For our circumstances. That God, you know, God, when we look at this, God always aims to glorify himself in one or both of these ways. When we experience adversity, when we experience suffering. You know, when, when the things that we have put our hopes and our comforts in have been removed. And I know many of your stories, many of you have experienced great suffering. Great adversity at the loss of a loved one, at the abuse and, and pain of someone else. When we experience adversity. God's aim is that is to glorify Himself by our turning to Him. You see, when adversity hats, it hits, we have two responses. People generally have two responses. They either turn away from God in anger or they turn toward Him in reliance. And God's desire is that we turn toward Him. And He gets the glory because of that. And God's also glorified both when His people die trusting Him and when they're delivered from death. Right? This was the struggle that Paul had when he wrote to the Philippians. I don't know which I want. I want to go be with the Lord but I know that to be here is better for you. And so he was torn. He loved the church. He loved the people that he... That that heard the gospel and converted, came to Christ. He loved them. And he had such a strong desire to be with the Lord. But, I, but he said, I know that the Lord has me here as a gospel worker to proclaim the gospel. And so I'm torn. Because I know that God is glorified in both. He's glorified when I die and I go to be you know, in heaven with him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But he's also glorified when I suffer Hang on, let me fill my note. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he's also glorified when I'm delivered from death. Go into the city, proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, mix it up with people. There's a sentence of death with on me. People want to kill me. They cast me into the street and they throw stones on me. I might die. I'm going to be. God's going to be glorified. But He delivers me from death. Praise God. He's still got work for me. There's another city that He wants me to go to. You know how I know that? Because I'm still alive. Right? Yeah, if you, you, those of you who are married, if you, you know, do you know how I know your spouse is the one God picked for you? Because you're married to him. Yeah, that may blow your, you know, the minds of, uh, of people who are very, very, this false romantic idea. But that, that's, you're married to him. There you go. Okay, sorry. That wasn't in my notes. Um, so, so back to Paul. Paul experiences adversity. The need to rely more on God, be delivered from the many people who are against him. He experiences this adversity, this, this adversity, and he asks the Corinthians to pray that God's purposes come about. This is what he says, where he says, God will yet deliver us, right? I'm, I'm experiencing this adversity. And he says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. 
So he asked the, 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 the Corinthians, pray that God's purposes would come about. Pray that God would deliver me, that he'd either take me home and he'd be glorified or that he would deliver me. Right now, pray that he would deliver me so that this work, this gospel work could continue. And so, it, it, we ask the question then, how does Paul view prayer? How does he understand prayer here? Because if you know, Paul is, I mean, he's championed as, you know, he's championed as the reform guy, right? I mean, you know, Paul's the one that talked so much about God's sovereignty, all of these things. And yet, Paul was a champion of prayer. Writing to the, to the Ephesians, pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you'll know was the hope of your calling was the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. His letters are filled with prayers for the church asking that the church pray for him. So in Paul's mind, there's a, there's a linking of the sovereignty of God in prayer. They go together somehow. How does this work? How does Paul understand prayer in the midst of all that he went through? I think he gives us a window of that in verse 11. Nathan, would you throw that, uh, that graphic up on the, on the screen? Now, before I get into this, let me, let me give credit where credit is due. I did not come up with this. Okay? I, I, saw, I saw this in a, in a Piper sermon years ago on this very text. And I said, this is fantastic. I mean, this is so helpful. And so, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pulling entirely from, from that with this. So like I said, I want to give credit where credit is due. All right. But I found it so helpful that I was like, I'm now I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. So I just, I, I redrew it and, you know, put it in a format that we can see. If this is helpful for you, absolutely wonderful. I can send this to you. You know, if it's just help, help you understand it. I've used this pictorial description multiple times in conversation with people. So, I hope this is helpful. But let's just walk through verse 11 and look at this. How does Paul understand prayer? Okay, so if at the bottom of the triangle, very in the very center, here's Paul. Paul experiences adversity. Okay, what does he do? What does Paul do? He's experiencing adversity. He's in Macedonia, let's say. He's in this city. He's experiencing, you know, adversity there. There's pressures coming on, chains and afflictions are right there at his doorstep. And what does he say? He reaches out to the, to the Corinthians, to other believers, and he says, please help us by prayer. That's what he's saying. Join in helping us through your prayers. Pray for me. Pray that God would deliver me so that I might continue to exalt his name. What happens then? The Corinthians pray for Paul. So we're following up from the cor that corner. It goes up to where God is. Okay, Pray for Paul. The Corinthians pray for Paul. Pray that Paul would be delivered. And what happens? Now we come back down. God gives a gift to Paul. This is the favor that's bestowed on us. That's what he's talking about. So it's, uh, he says, so that many thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us. Paul's not asking for money. He's not asking for a Christmas present. What is he wanting? Pray that God would deliver us. And when that happens... God's the one who's done it. That's the gift that he's wanting from the Lord is that he would be delivered from that suffering. That, uh, you know, not, not just so he can get through another day, but so he can continue the gospel work God's given to him. So God grants this gift. I don't know if it's in this, in this missionary journey, but, but Paul, when he's in Macedonia once, he was, he was, it was made known to him by others about a plot to kill him. And I think if I'm not mistaken... 
he was looking to leave and go by ship back to Jerusalem. And because of the plot that was made known to him, he escaped the city and he had to make his way back around the Aegean Sea, the long way around, to, to Jerusalem. What happened? God delivered him. God delivered him from death by making known to him the plot that was, you know, that was afoot, basically, and giving him that opportunity to leave and escape the city. So God delivers Paul from death. And then what happens? It doesn't end there. Now, so often, and I'll be quite honest, this is what happens in my prayers. Go pray for me. I'm struggling with this. I'm going through this. Yada, yada, yada. Pray for me. Somebody prays for me. God delivers me from whatever that is. Yay! Okay, now I've, you know, whatever. That's where it ends. But that doesn't end for Paul right there. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, you know, Paul, Paul's mindset is that there will be many people who will thank God for this. Right? That others will see and, and if they don't see it, he'll make it known to them. God delivered me from this death. He goes on later in, you know, in, in Corinthians to talk about the sufferings and struggles that he's gone through. And God delivering him from this. And the intention there is not that people, that the Christians would take pity on them, but that they would give praise to God. So going across the bottom there to the right, Paul, that people would see God's gift of Paul delivering him from that sentence of death and that they would turn around and praise God. That they would, that they would thanks, thank God. Look at verse 11 again. He says, so that you would join in helping us through your prayers for the gift that's bestowed on us. You know, saving us from the sentence of death so that we might continue the gospel work so that thanks may be given by many persons. You see that? Paul has in mind that God would get glory because of his saving work through the thanksgiving of many. So you see how that, do you see how that works? Right? The adversity that Paul is, is that rests upon him, he doesn't ball that up and keep that in. He sees that here's an opportunity for God to get glory. Pray for me, Corinthians. Here's what's going on. Pray for me. I can't do this in myself. Pray for me. Corinthians, pray. God delivers. Look, look, look. God's delivered. Here's what God's done in answer to that prayer. Praise God for it. Give Him glory. God gets the glory for the adversity that Paul has experienced. You see how that works? You see how that works? Now there's a blue line that's there that's implied. And again, I leaned very heavily on, on, on Piper for this because he's the one that draw, drew this out and I thought that's, that's very Piper, but it's also very, very true. Okay, that Paul receives joy and comfort because of the thanksgiving that's being given to God. Okay, you see, what's Paul trying to motivate the, Christian, the, the Corinthians to do? He's trying to motivate them to pray for him, right? How does he do that? He does it by showing them that this will result in God being thanked by many people. He says, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift, the favor that's bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Corinthians, why should you pray for me? Not so that, just so that I can not be killed, but so that thanks may be given by many people, namely you and your church and these other churches because of what God has done. 
and Paul receives joy. So Paul, Paul delights in God getting the glory through the thanksgiving for those prayers that were, be, that were answered. See, Paul receives joy for that, and he also receives comfort. Remember I told you we draw that comfort back in? That that first set of verses is filled so much with comfort. God of all comforts. The God who comforts us in our afflictions. We have the comfort of Christ. What is that comfort of Christ? Praise God, he's not left me. I've still got work to do. It's the joy of seeing God glorified through the thanks of many. What's Paul's work? To spread the gospel, but ultimately that many people would worship God through Jesus. Right? Many people would worship God through Jesus. That's his ultimate motivation. And Paul gets joy and joy from that. When that happens. Anytime that happens, he gets joy because here's God at work. Here's the gospel doing its thing that God has said. My word's going to go forth in power. It's going to do its thing. And here's how it's going to do it. Paul saw that clearly. Crystal clear. It's what got him through his sufferings. It's how he could say, even in my afflictions, God gives me comfort. His ultimate motivation is that many people would glorify God through genuine gratitude, through genuine worship. The very work he's trying to accomplish, namely God being worshipped by many, is happening. And it's God who's causing it to come about through his afflictions. Do you see that, church? Do you see that? So there's a prayer triangle. Right there. Paul, why do we pray? If God's sovereign, he's going to get the glory. Why do we pray? Because the very means that he's ordained by which he gets the glory is through our struggles and through many people thanking him for the deliverance that he gives because we pray for it. Do you see that? Paul saw that crystal clear. God's sovereign, absolutely. And I'm going to pray that he gets glory and I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch him do his thing. Maybe he answers exactly as the way that, that, that we need or that we want right now. Praise God. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe the affliction gets worse. Praise God. We're relying more and more on him. So what do we do with this? We give you a few points of application as we close out. One, understand what's at stake with prayer. And this is something I have to remind myself when I get dry and my prayers become just very rote. And I'm more focused on, all right, I got 15 minutes to sit in the Word before the kids get up and before the dogs start to stir in their crate. I'm going to spend more time in the Word and go, Lord, Lord bless your Word, you know, make it do its thing. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, now, what's here? I'm reminded when I read this, I need to understand what's at stake in prayer. Don't disregard, don't disregard it because God will do whatever He wants. So there's no point. God does through prayer what he's sovereignly ordained to do. That's how he gets the glory. If I really want God to get to the glory, then I should pray. Because it shows, I believe, he really is going to get the glory. And I want to participate in the means through which he's going to get it. And for the Christian, if there's no prayer, there's no gospel power. This is arresting to me. And I look at my day and go, Austin, did you pray today? 
Did you, did you pray? To, are you connected to the power source of God's work through prayer? Or, or, or am I just out for a walk today? For the Christian, if there's no prayer, there's no gospel power. So one, understand what's at stake at prayer. It's the glory of God that is at stake. Secondly, pray with the end in mind. This is what I take away from Paul. Paul wanted many, worship, many people to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's where he saw in his afflictions and his struggles and the afflictions of others, right? That's what he says to the Corinthians. The same comfort with which we're comforted, we're able to comfort those who are also in affliction. You share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. That if you are struggling, you are suffering, the same comfort that I'm getting, I'm going to pass that on to you. I'm going to encourage you in your time of dire struggle, when you're tempted to be angry at the Lord and turn away from Him, I'm going to comfort you with that same thing. God is still at work. He still desires to be glorified. He's, he's, he's laying before you a fork in the road. Are you Christian going to trust in Him and rely more and more upon Him? Drive you more and more to prayer? Maybe put you in an uncomfortable position to share some personal information with some other Christians that you're just like, I don't want to burden them with that. But if you, if you have that end in mind, that washes away. I want God to be exalted. I want God to be glorified. Pray for me. Pray to the Lord for me in this. And then, when, when, and then with, the, with the end result that God would be thanked for however he responds. That God would be exalted and that God would be worshipped. So pray with that end in mind. Thirdly, how much are you willing to suffer so that God would be glorified in your adversity? I mean, we think of suffering, I think we think so much of third world martyrs. You know, right? I mean, this is, when we think of Christian suffering, I mean, it's being killed in a foreign country because you shared the gospel in a public situa- you know, situation or you shared it to somebody and they come knocking on your door at 2 a.m. and kill you and your family. And I think this is what we oftentimes think about. But think of suffering where it comes right now in context. And being a Christian's risky right now. Because it, re- it requires contact with people. I mean, it requires being together. You can only digitize Christian faith so much before you end up just being completely disconnected. It risky, it's, it's risky. Right? It's at risk when we get together. When, we, when we're burdened for someone and we say, you know, I, I want to pray for you. I need to know how are you doing? How has God answered this? That's a phone call. But that may also be an in-person. The Lord's designed us in His own image, right? You know, it, we're, 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 we're people who are designed to be in community together. You know? I sit out here and I look and I see you with mask on. You know, there's a part of the relational aspect that is taken away because I can't see your full face. You know? Now we do that, you know, we, we understand that. We understand that. But it's just a testimony that we're designed to be people who are in community together. Right? And so there's a risk. There's a risk we take every day. Go back to that verse 9 and 10. Adversity that you're facing. Maybe you're a teacher. You're struggling. How do I, how do, I do this? 
And uh, now I've got to teach two classes. The adversity that you're struggling. Maybe you're a parent. How do I juggle this? I've got a job and responsibility. I've got to teach kids. I've got to do homeschool now. How do I juggle this? Maybe you have a newborn child, you know. That whole glass ceiling is blown away, right? You know, got a new life is now completely different. Struggles that you're going through, the adversity that you're going through, is that pushing you to rely more and more on God so that He might get the glory? That's the point. Not so that you can just get through today and into tomorrow. But so that He might get the glory and the thanksgiving. Do a, do a systems check. Is the, if, you're, if you're facing suffering, if you're facing adversity right now, is that causing you to be pushed more towards God and reliance upon Him or away from Him? That doesn't necessarily have to be in anger. That could be in distraction. I'm going to turn more to this. Netflix, you know, video games, something else that just takes my mind off of it rather than to God. These things are not necessarily bad, but if they begin to replace our relationship with the Lord, then they are bad. What effect is, is adversity having on you? Fourth? I think I'm fourth. No, I didn't write these in num numeric order, so don't listen to the numbers. <laughs> don't just tell someone, I'll pray for you. Actually pray with them like on the spot. And this is something that uh, I've had wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ in the past several years. I would share something with them and they would say, can I pray for you? So yeah, absolutely. And they said, no, 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 like right now. Well, I've got to go do this, or you know, that, that's that's not convenient. And I mean, I don't say that, but that's the first thing that's going through my mind. And then I'm like, well, yeah. And they prayed with me, like right there. It, it wasn't like I'll pray for you later. It's no, I'm gonna, I want, can I pray for you? Because like they believe prayer was really important. I'm not saying when we say I'll pray for you later, it's not important. But that was a demonstration that they like really believed it. And I've taken from that and, and, and I'm, I'm reminded and in several instances pray like right now. I had a friend that I'd lost contact with call me. His marriage was falling apart. I talked with him for an hour. It wasn't convenient. I said, you know, he, he, needs, he needs me right now. I had a unique opportunity to empathize with somebody in a struggle that I had shared as well. And so I empathized with it. I was able to talk to him. But I said, can I pray for you? He said, yeah, man, absolutely. I said, can we pray right now? And there was a pause. He said, yes, please. And so I prayed with him. It was right then. Right then. I didn't know exactly the words to say. He said, Lord, try, give me the words. Let me speak to you. It's amazing how the Lord puts into our heart and our mind the things that need to be said, you know, in that moment. I can't tell you what I prayed. But I know... It was meaningful for him, but it also reminded me, continue to pray for this man. So pray for people. Pray for them right then. Actually pray for them on the spot. And then pray for them later, and then follow up with them later. How's, how's the Lord answered this? How are you doing? What's going on? How can I pray more for you? That's the hard part often for me. I have missionaries that I'm close to and 
I struggle to remember. Pray for them. That's why I come back to these texts and I'm reminded this is so important. This is so important. It's like breathing for the Christian. Also notice 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 the unique opportunities that give rise to prayer. As many of you know we have puppies at home and we're really trying to like train them to be good dogs and we've been working with a trainer and we've learned about this you know clicking thing. A little device that just makes a little click sound you know and it's a unique sound that the dogs when we train them when they hear it they recognize oh my owner likes whatever I just did and, and I'm going to be rewarded for it. It's a unique sound that they, that they only associate with good things. And that's what we're trying to use as a training tool. And I thought about that this morning as I was looking at this. I'm like, Paul saw the adversity and it was a trigger in his mind. Just like that click sound is a trigger to the dogs. Their attention's diverted from whatever it is. Oh, I'm clued in. When Paul experienced suffering, he experienced adversity, he was clued in. This is an opportunity for God to get worship through the thanksgiving of many if they pray. Pray for me. I think so often we, we, we see opportunities, we either miss it or we look at it and go, I don't want your mess on me. I don't want you to deal with my mess. You know, don't want to burden you. With that. We, we have these ideas that are just somehow fed into our mind. We need to retrain ourselves to look at it like Paul did and say, this is an opportunity for God to be glorified. Let's, let's participate in it. So you hear things that people are struggling with. Well, let that click in your mind. There's an opportunity for prayer. I think, I, I think this is how prayer warriors and people who are really, you know, tuned in on, on prayer and just naturally pray. I think this has got to be the way their minds work. Because it just naturally flows out of them. Tune your mind and your heart to listen for those opportunities to pray for people. When they come upon you, don't shy away and say, I don't want to burden somebody with that. If you truly want God to be glorified, that's the opportunity. Right there. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah, it requires maybe some awkward conversation. I guarantee you it required, you know, Paul some awkward conversations for him. But that's how God gets glory and you don't. Right? Because you're relying on God to do something that you cannot do yourself. So look for those opportunities. To train your mind to recognize those opportunities for prayer and, and take advantage of them. And then lastly, and Jamie, this really is lastly, by the way. We had a conversation about pastors and when they use the term lastly. If we desire that God be exalted, then we should see adversity for what it is. Namely, the opportunity that God is using to cause us to rely more and more upon Him. And that He's going to be exalted in this moment or in, the, in what follows from this. Either in our death, praise God, exalted, we're home with Jesus, or He's keeping us, He's maintaining us for the work that He has. Mainly that, that other fruit would be born through our faithful Christian witness. That's your job as a Christian. That's why we're here. You ask the, God, ask, the, ask the question, what's God's will for my life? It's that you would exalt and glorify Him through your faithful witness as a follower of Jesus. Career, job, marriage, you know, I mean, all, all of these things, I can't answer that. I know. 
but in whatever task, whatever, as Solomon says, whatever task you put your mind to and your hand to, that you glorify God in that. And in whatever adversity that you struggle through and you wrestle through, as he maintains you through that and you grow and he fashions you more and more like Christ, you still have that job to do. You still have that job to do. That's the drumbeat of your life. That was Paul's drumbeat. That is the drumbeat of any Christian that follows after him. If we desire that God be exalted, then we should see adversity for what it is and eagerly seek other faithful believers to pray for us and us pray for them and wait expectantly for God to respond and then thank Him in whatever response He gives to us. Let me pray for us as we close and I'll give our benediction. Father God, I pray I've been faithful. I've borrowed much from others who have thought deeply on this and I'm so grateful for their efforts. I don't want to make any presuppositions that I've got all of this figured out. I lean so heavily on those who've come before me. I don't mind sharing the gold nuggets that they have unearthed with others so that others might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Might be faithful witnesses that we might have a robust view of prayer. We might understand how important it is and we would engage in it. So Father, I pray as we've laid our mind and our hearts upon your word, your solid rock that you have brought forth living water and that we would drink deeply from it. Lord, I pray for all of us who are here and those who couldn't be here today that you would do your work in our hearts. Christ would be magnified, that we would see prayer for what it is, that we would see the end in mind, that you would be glorified and we would receive joy and comfort in your glorification because that's ultimately what we want. And that it would motivate us to pray eagerly, consistently, with a brave boldness every day. By the way, may we as a church have a heartfelt burden for prayer. May it lay upon us. May we engage in it. Father, I thank you and I praise you. Praise you for the work that you've done in this church in growing everyone in the grace and knowledge of Jesus that you have brought us together as believers, a local expression of your global body. I thank you and praise you, Father. We have the opportunity to pray together and to see you at work in our midst and even in the world in which we're involved. Father, I praise you and I give you thanks for the work that you're doing and that, you're con that you'll continue to do. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I'll close with a benediction from from Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, David writes that God doesn't need our tangible sacrifices. The earth is His and all that's in it. You know, what He does, what does He desire from us? He desires a thankful heart. So I'll give you this as a benediction. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You're dismissed. <laughs>